Good morning. We have a lot happening in the foyer today, so if you're having a hard time hearing, there's plenty of room up here in the front. Uh, feel free to move. We're going to focus on one verse today, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. be great if you'd turn there in your Bibles, uh, but we're also going to put it up on the screen now, and I'd like us to read this wonderful verse together aloud in unison. Let's say it together. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. What is it that makes Christians different from everybody else? Is it the food we eat or drink? I mean... We are supposed to exercise self-control in eating and drinking, but plenty of other people do that as well. Some even do a better job than we might do. Maybe it's our political opinions or affiliations. Is that what sets us apart? No, uh, because Christians uh, find that we cannot ascribe exclusive loyalty to any political party. And if you travel around the world, you'll see Christians, true believers, who come from a whole spectrum of political ideas? Is it our faultless character that sets us apart? No, because Christians would be the first to tell you that we have nothing in ourselves of which to boast, and we can point to many people who are not Christians who have impeccable moral character, sometimes better than we do. Is it how religiously devoted we are? No, because you can find people from all kinds of religions who at least match the zeal of Christians, if not exceed it. Is it how healthy and prosperous and successful we are in this world? No, because Christians suffer illnesses and business failures and financial difficulties, just like everybody else. So what sets believers in Jesus apart? We are the only people in this world whose death is already behind us. Believers are the only people who can write their own obituary and go on living. And this verse explains how and why. The main claim of this verse is that for a believer in Jesus, Christ's death has become our death, and his life has become our life, and that changes everything about how we live today. Paul gives us an excellent description here of what one of the Puritans called the mysterious life of a believer. And it begins with writing his own obituary. Every obituary starts with the announcement of a person's death, but no obituary is written by the deceased, except here in verse 20. Point one, Paul begins by speaking about the death that is behind us. I've been crucified, says Paul. A real death has taken place. My death is behind me. Yet paradoxically, I'm here to write about it. Now, in order to grasp Paul's meaning, we have to see something about what led up 
to these words. This verse comes in the context of a strikingly unusual passage. It's the only place in the Bible where one apostle publicly rebukes another apostle face to face. Paul is rebuking Peter because Peter is letting the fear of man cause him to lose his grip on the gospel. And Paul insists in verse 16, Peter, we have believed in Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. I remember when I was about two weeks away from my high school graduation, my youth pastor sent out a survey on Christian doctrine to all of us who were graduating and asked us to set up a lunch meeting with him. So we set up a lunch at Big Boy Restaurant in Kenosha, and I turned in the survey. And when I got to that meeting, my youth pastor asked me, do you understand what justification means? Because apparently in the questionnaire, I hadn't given a very good answer to that question. Even though I'd been going to church all my life, even though I believed in Jesus, I didn't understand clearly that when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, God treats me as if I were just as righteous as Jesus is. Through my union with Christ, God sees me and treats me just as if I had never sinned and just as if I had always obeyed. That's justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And I didn't understand very well what it meant. And that's a problem. It's a problem because Sinclair Ferguson argues more trouble is caused in the Christian life by an inadequate or mistaken view of justification than by anything else. So don't just shrug this off. Don't just think, oh, I already know all that stuff. Don't be like the man who, when asked to explain the difference between ignorance and apathy, said, I don't know and I don't care. Precisely was the answer. The truth of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone is something you need to know and it's something you need to care about. Martin Luther said we need to beat it into our heads continually. So test yourself. Do you understand the good news of justification by grace through faith in Christ alone? It all comes down to the order. The gospel, the biblical gospel, follows this order. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and at that moment, you are justified. You are declared righteous by God. You are freed from condemnation then, out of gratitude for what God has done for you in Christ, you proceed to live an obedient life through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That's the biblical gospel. Believe, you're justified, and then you obey. The false gospel says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then keep the law, obey as best you can, and someday, hopefully, you will be justified. You will be declared righteous. So what do you believe? Does God love you and accept you, and therefore, as a result of his free love and acceptance, you love him and live a life of obedience? That's the biblical gospel. Or do you come to God and promise to lead a good life 
and hope that therefore God sees the good life you're living and he will love you and accept you. That's the false gospel. Are you loved because you are attractive or are you attractive because you are loved? If I'm loved because I'm attractive, that's the false gospel. Or if I'm attractive because I'm loved, that's the the true gospel. Do you do something for God and therefore God owes you? That's the false gospel. Or did God do everything for you in Christ and therefore you give your life to him? That's the true gospel. And there's no middle ground on these points. As soon as you start to mix something in that you do into the gospel, you completely distort the gospel into a non-gospel. The truth is, we cannot justify ourselves by our own good works any more than a person who steals a loaf of bread from Jewel this week can make it right by going back and buying a pound of butter next week. It doesn't work that way. Paul says that believers in Jesus have given up on the law as a way of being acceptable to God. We've we've died to that. But does that mean that he's advocating a life of lawless disobedience? Is it now okay for believers to sin in the name of Jesus Christ? Paul's answer to that question in verse 17 is absolutely not. Believers can and do and will struggle with sin for the rest of our earthly lives in these bodies. But we hate sin now. We want to live in obedience to Christ. And the answer is not to rebuild the law as a means of becoming right with God. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul's experience with God's law is that it functioned like a mirror, reflecting what was inside his heart, showing him that his heart was desperately wicked and beyond cure. And the law created a hunger in his heart for Christ. But it goes even deeper than that. Not only did the law show Paul his sin and create in him a hunger for the Savior, In Paul's mind and experience, the law has condemned him and executed him already. Every bit of the condemnation his sins deserved has already been paid for. Think about it like this. If a prisoner on death row breaks free from the prison and is out at large, the authorities are going to go on a manhunt kind of like what's happening right now in Maine. And the law is going to hunt down that criminal and ensure that the full penalty is paid. But if the authorities find that the prisoner drowned in the river, they're not going to bring him back to the prison for a lethal injection. The law no longer has any claim on that prisoner because he has died. And that's what brings us to this rare jewel in verse 20. Here's where the Apostle Paul explains how and why he died to the law. It was when Christ died on the cross. Paul says at the beginning of verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's how and when he died to the law. Now, Phil Riken explains that there are four 
things that were nailed to the cross at Calvary. First, of course, the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus Christ were nailed to that cross. But secondly, as we look at the Bible, we see that there was a placard nailed above the head of Jesus that said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And that's not all that was nailed to the cross. Colossians tell, tells us that God forgave all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he took that record of debt away by nailing it to the cross. That's why we can sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So Christ was nailed to the cross. A sign above his head was nailed to the cross. And the record of my debt was nailed to the cross and paid in full. But surprisingly, in this verse, we see there's a fourth thing that was nailed to the cross. This is the great surprise of this verse. If you are a follower of Jesus, you too were nailed to the cross. You were crucified with Christ. William Perkins, the Puritan, described it like this. We are in mind and meditation to consider Christ crucified. And first, we are to believe that he was crucified for us. That being done we must go yet further and, as it were, spread ourselves on the cross of Christ, believing and with all beholding ourselves crucified with him. <laughs> this doesn't mean that we can somehow repeat the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on, his, on, a, on the cross. Only he could atone for our sins. But the Bible says that we who believe in him have been crucified with him. And it uses a verb tense here to describe something that really and truly happened in the past that continues to exert an ongoing power and influence in our lives today. And we're getting to the very heart of the gospel here. If we, if we had to sum up what is at the very heart of the gospel in three words, it would be union with Christ. The Apostle Paul uses these phrases over and over again in his letters. In Christ, with Christ. That's what's at the heart of the gospel. More than anything else, Christ and believers are so cemented together that we are like one flesh, which God has joined together and no one can separate. Everything that happened to Jesus really and truly happened to those who believe in Jesus. Everything that belongs to Jesus really and truly belongs to us. When he died, we died with him. Being crucified with Christ isn't something that a Christian aspires to, like, I hope someday to be crucified with Christ. It's not something that happens just to a few of the most devoted followers of Jesus. This is a settled, objective reality that is true of everyone 
who belongs to Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross as a fact of history, you died with him on that cross, also an objective reality. There on the cross, your sin and my sin were exposed for the heinous, gruesome, damnable reality that it really is. You and I deserve what happened to Jesus to happen to us for all eternity. That's what we deserve. But if we trust in Jesus, we no longer need to fear the curse and condemnation of the law against us because everything that the holy law of God required of us, Christ gave. And we're so united to him that his death on the cross is our substitute and our representative becomes our death. Now, the fact that we have been crucified with Christ changes our entire outlook on life now. And that's what we see with Paul. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It is no longer I who live. You got to just kind of let that sink in for a while. What does he mean, I no longer live? Well, it means that Paul no longer thinks of himself as having a life of his own. It's not his life anymore. He's not the old person that he once was. Leonard Ravenhill describes Paul as a man who had no ambitions for himself, and so he had nothing to be jealous about. He had no reputation, so he had nothing to fight about. He had no possessions, so he had nothing to worry about. He had no rights, so therefore he could suffer no wrong. He was already broken, so no one could break him. He was dead, so no one could kill him. He was less than the least, so who could humble him? He had suffered the loss of all things, so no one could defraud him. That was Paul's outlook on life now. How contrary is the, the, the outlook that we're told to have in, in the world today. What do we hear constantly screaming at us? You do you. That's the message. You do you. You look inward. Find yourself. Reject all authority. Choose your own identity. Assert yourself. Protect yourself. Fulfill yourself. Indulge yourself. You do you, because all you have is yourself. That's what the world is always telling us. But Paul has a radically different outlook. He has died to himself, so much so that he says, I no longer live. The life that once existed before Christ met him on the Damascus Road, that man is dead. He has a new name now, a new identity, a new motivation, a new reason for being. In Christian history, Augustine, the great North African church leader, was a man who, during his 20s, was completely enslaved by lust. And he knew, he he was even disgusted by himself many times, and he tried to stop this life of promiscuity. But he couldn't free himself from, from the chains of lust. He was powerless until Jesus Christ came into his life and and shined into his heart the light of the knowledge of his glory. And Augustine wrote in his confessions, 
How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. And you took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure. O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. The old Augustine was crucified with Christ. He died. He was a new man now. And then came a day when his death with Christ was proven and demonstrated in a time of testing. One of his old lovers encountered him on the street, and she greeted him with a seductive smile. Augustine, it is I, she said. But he turned and looked her in the eye and said, yes, but it is no longer I. I've changed. And he turned away. I'm crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. What good news this is for those of us who struggle with who we once were. For those of us who look back on things in our life and just feel ashamed of what we've done, what we've felt, what we've said, haunted by the specter of our past, afraid that one day the past is going to catch up with us and we're going to be exposed and condemned. The good news here is that the devil can't hurt you because you're already dead. Your past sins can't be brought against you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the old eye has died. Back a few years ago at a British art museum, some climate protesters, two young women, came in and protested by spraying a Van Gogh with tomato soup. And as the onlookers gasped and called for security, the soup just dripped down this beautiful, expensive portrait. But a little bit later, the British Museum announced there was no need to worry. The frame was damaged a bit. But nothing could touch the canvas because a thin veneer of glass had been put over it so that nothing could stick to this beautiful picture. And that's what's true of us. No accusation the devil brings against us can stick because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the old eye that was subject to condemnation is dead. We have a new identity now. So Martin Luther put it like this, Mr. Devil, I do not fear your threatening and terrors, for I believe in one whose name is Jesus Christ. He has abolished the law, condemned sin, vanquished death, and destroyed hell. And Mr. Devil, this Jesus is your tormentor because he has bound you and is holding you captive so that you might not hurt me or anyone who believes in Jesus. So this is part one of the obituary of every believer. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But part two moves from the death that is behind us to the life that is now 
in us. It's paradoxical how Paul writes here. Even though he says he has been crucified, five times in this verse he talks about life. Who has ever been crucified and lived again to tell about it? Only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul is saying here that just as Jesus' death becomes our death, now also his resurrection life becomes our life. I no longer live, but look at what he says. Jesus Christ now lives in me. This is what makes Christians different. We're in a living, loving, lasting union with the risen Lord Jesus. He gives us life the way a branch gets life from the vine. It's his life that animates us and transforms us and protects us until the day we're revealed with him in glory. Being a Christian isn't about trying harder to conform to God's standards. It's by being transformed by the life of Christ within us who dwells in us by his spirit. Just think about what Jesus looks like in the Gospels. His tenderness, his truth, his grace, his courage, his love. He's the true man. He's he's everything humanity was created to be. And that's who he is out to make you and me now. He's on a, a mission to conform us to his image and likeness. Like when you believe in Jesus Christ, he redeems your humanity. He, he redeems your personality to make you more and more like him, but each of us in our own unique way. Our lives become like living photographs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when people see us, they see a striking resemblance of him because Jesus Christ now lives in us. And to have Jesus Christ living in you is the most radical change of identity you could imagine. His life in you transforms everything. Just just listen to a few ways Paul describes this transformation. In Galatians 5, verse 24, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That means that through the life of Jesus in us, The old passions, the sinful Christ-dishonoring passions die and new desires start to rule our lives. We start to be ruled by the kinds of desires that filled the heart of Jesus himself. Or Galatians 6 verse 14, Paul says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. So we're no longer slaves of the world. We don't conform to the standards of this world. We're not in bondage to the values of this world. Our lives aren't controlled by the outlook of this world. We are free now to give our lives for the blessing and salvation of the world now that Christ lives in us. Or verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Think about this when we're suffering. Paul says that as we suffer... We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. So as we suffer with and for Jesus, the resurrection life of Jesus fills us and people see his grace and his glory 
in us and through us. We even start to smell like Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Smelling like Jesus. John Piper said, when people spiritually smell our ethos, our attitudes, our actions, when they sniff spiritually, what they smell is the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. And the more we see him clearly, the more we behold who he really is, the more and more Jesus conforms us to his likeness, we all with unveiled faces, Paul says, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit who dwells in us. So how do we live in the good of this precious truth? That I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. How do we appropriate this? How do we live in the good of this? Well, Paul tells us how in the second part of this verse. He says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. There's the answer. By faith in the Son of God. Faith clasps Christ the way a ring clasps the jewel. Faith receives Christ the way an empty vessel receives treasure. Faith is our act, but it's not our work. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us, enabling us to take and trust and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Francis Schaeffer puts it like this. Living by faith means that in our thoughts and lives, we are to live as though we had already died, been to heaven, and come back again as risen. <laughs> and isn't that what's happened, biblically speaking? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So what difference would it make if kind of every hour this week I said, hey, David, live as if you've already died, been to heaven, and come back again as risen. Because truly, that's how united you are to Christ. <laughs> I'd be a new person. There'd be changes in the way I deal with anxiety, in the way I face discouragement. If, if I knew that I've died with Christ, I'm seated with him in the heavenly places, and now I have a new life, a risen life. Jesus lives in me. And so when I feel weak and when I feel anxious and when I feel discouraged, I say, but Jesus, your life in me cannot die. You make me more than a conqueror. You love me. You're for me. That's what Paul's describing here. He's living every moment of his life with the cross of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection in view. And Paul just can't get over the fact that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. 
You know, it all comes down to this. What does the cross of Jesus Christ mean to you? I heard Tim Keller say, he illustrated like this. Imagine that your house was burning down, but your whole family had escaped. And I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the house and died. You'd probably think, what a tragic and pointless waste of life. I didn't need him to do that. That's the way many people think about the death of Jesus on the cross. I, I really don't know how that connects to me. I really don't feel like I need that. But now, Keller says, imagine that your house was on fire and one of your children was still in there and I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into the flames and saved your child but perished myself. You would think, look at how much that man loved us. If we could save ourselves, Christ's death is pointless and it means nothing. But if we realize that we cannot save ourselves, Christ's death will mean everything to us. And we will spend the life that he has given us in joyful service of him, bringing our whole lives into line with the gospel. For Paul, it was the love of Christ on the cross. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me that faith in that living Savior is what fueled and motivated him to live a whole new life. And may the Spirit of God give us faith to see that that life is for us as well. So let's bow before him.